Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. And he says it like so perfectly like, oh, <laughs> if I said that one to him, he'd be like, yo. <laughs> Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined as always by Andy Keats, managing editor for investigations and special projects at Voice of San Diego. What's up, Andy? Hey, Scott. How you doing, pal? I'm all right. Thank you. And fellow managing editor, Daily News, basically the the charisma of the shop. <laughs> Andrea Lopez Villafania. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. How are you? Good. How are you? We'll get you to lunch soon. <laughs> Hang in there. I'm right. hangry, people. All right. I can't be held responsible for what I say. No, you can, and let's go. Let's Promising go. Promising start. Coming up on the show this week, as we've talked about, one thing that seems obvious for the city and state to do is, for the homeless crisis, set aside some areas where people can park their cars that they're living in and put their tents. If you want to clean up public spaces, you should have a place you can tell these people to go. Downtown, a plan was moving forward. It had money, it had support, and of course, it's nowhere near getting done. We'll explain what is holding that project up and what local leaders are saying about it. On the second half of the show, we've got reporters Will Huntsbury and Jesse Marks coming in for background. Remember, we had to sue to access county death certificates to dig deeper into what happened to people who died of COVID-19, who they were, where they were, why did they die? Now we have the data from year two of the pandemic. We did year one before. Year two of the pandemic is here. And uh, this, of course, is the year after vaccines were made widely available. County deaths, accordingly, fell by almost half, but in some places, they did not. Mm-hmm. Marks and Huntsbury will explain what they learned digging through all those records. That's all coming up. Stay with us. All right, first of all, first, first, did you guys see the Michael Smolens column 
Michael Smolin's Union Tribune column about Amar Kampanjar. I did. I did. Amar Kampanjar ran for Congress 2018, ran for Congress 2020, uh, flirted with running for uh, assembly, and then ran for mayor in Chula Vista, uh, a different area of the county. Uh, and this was checking in. It was a great column idea. Mm-hmm. Check in. What are your plans now? And the quotes were just great. It, the headline, too, to me, was also, frankly, great. What was, what was the headline? I don't I, like, I, I, elected officials and their staff often assume that I intend slights that are like subtly placed in yeah. my stories yeah. that I absolutely do not intend. Uh-huh. I am constantly saying, I, you know, that never occurred to me. You're reading more into that. And they say, of course you meant it. You know, you're always out to get us. So I don't want to assume that Michael Smolens or his editor at the Union Tribune intended for this headline to be hilarious. But it is hilarious to me that, do you have it there? Can you yeah. read it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Colin, Colin, Campanajar may take a break from running for office, but says he's not going away. It's like... Take a break for running for office, like as if he's like, like, <laughs> like it's like the yo-yo, and he's like been doing it too much. Like it's like a hobby of his or something. Like not not being a, a politician. Go not get some like, water. Yeah. <laughs> take a break from running for office. Like that's the thing he does is runs for office, and he might take a break from doing that. I just <laughs> hear that word, and I just picture Ross going, "We were on a break." <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so uh, that you're right. Do you? Th- it, it's one of those where, because we know who Campanajar is and that he runs for office a lot, yeah. that it makes sense. It's just like sits there. But you're right. Once you pull aside, you're like, that's that's just devastating. <laughs> yeah, it's a devastating thing to to say. Okay, so um, it presumes like he's never going to win, right? But he may decide to just keep doing this. <laughs> So he uh, in the in the column they they ask, "Are you going to run again?" Um, Smolin says, and he says, "Quote: I'm 33. It would be political malpractice just to walk away." <laughs> There's a lot packed in there, like like the world needs me. <laughs> like, I, like my presence is like akin to killing a successful surgery, right? Right. And and to leave, do you want to would kill? be like a botched surgery? Yeah. Do you want to kill the patient that is San Diego? <laughs> He said later, uh, John McCann has won elected office as a Republican for 20 years in Chula Vista. It's easy to overlook that. That's formidable, and he deserves credit for that. That's Campanajar about his rivals. Went Probably the nicest thing I ever heard him say about John McCann. And uh, I think true, like a, a true bit of political insight that maybe we or others were uh, overly eager to overlook. Yeah, and... Well, we'll see what he does. Uh, he, you know, his presence in the congressional uh, races was uh, was good. It was great for the debate and for the framing of the issues. Same thing in Chula Vista. So, see what happens next. All right. As we said last week, this is a critical time for Voice San Diego. We are trying to raise two hundred fifty thousand dollars from all of you by the end of the month. That'll help us hit our goals and make the case to larger funders that we're doing our best and and their contributions are reflected in the popular support for this service. So you can give now to be part of that, vosd.org slash pod people. That's vosd.org slash pod people. And when you do, you can write us a note and many people have. Let's read a couple. So Heather Noss, she said, 
podcast makes me a better informed San Diego citizen. This is it's great. I know. I saw that earlier and I was like, wow, I feel so good. Jan Allen said, I want to keep Voice of San Diego up and running. David Hutchinson said, journalism matters. You're good at it. Thank you. Yeah. Cynthia Dickinson said, I love your local focus and contextual reporting. About 70% of our budget comes from people like you. Individual gifts are key to the whole thing working. So join the people who have contributed at vosd.org slash podpeople. That's vosd.org slash podpeople. So Twitter might be going crazy, might be falling apart or whatever. It's three straight weeks we've started this way. <laughs> but <laughs> it was nice to get back into some 2010, 2012 era Twitter jostling. Uh, jostling last night mm-hmm. uh, as I jostled a little bit with the mayor's communications director, Rachel Lang. Okay. She said, I don't want to be combative, and I hope you don't take it that way, but, and then we, we proceeded to get a little combative. <laughs> now, which e- even what you just you described is like absolute, absolutely polite compared to 2012 era Twitter in San Diego. It's true. So uh, we have talked at length on the podcast about the urgency we'd like to see around the crisis of homelessness in San Diego. And part of that is what we or I feel like should be like an urgent, anxious push to find safe places that people could both park their cars if they're living in their cars and uh, put their tents if they have tents, that they they like to live in these communities. The, The tents themselves show their like desire for shelter. They're not, they don't wanna be outside. They wanna be in tents. They like to be in their in their communities of different people. There should be just places that they can go that are safer, that are set aside from public spaces, and allow uh, uh, for us to address address them and know that where they're at, and, and even make maybe a place that they could go to the bathroom, for example, right? To get a shower. The city has, to be clear, some safe parking places, but it has no safe camping places right now. Safe places for people to put their tents. So, Safe village is often a term. Right. And so there was a plan moving forward. The downtown partnership had spearheaded it for a long time in downtown to try to get something going at, what is it, 4th and Beach? That That is, yeah. The, so 20th and B was, there was a safe village at 20th and B some years ago during the hepatitis crisis. Um, that was temporary. And when the crisis faded, it broke, it shut down. Um, and so there was some discussion early on in the downtown partnership that maybe that would be the site again. After all, it would have been the site before, so it was easy to to conjure maybe as a possibility. But now, yeah, Fourth and Beach, uh, which is essentially like a block north and uh, east of 101 Ash Street. So it had the ostensible support of both the downtown partnership and some philanthropists, but also the mayor. Right, the city was on board sort of tentatively. Lisa Auerstadt, our reporter, decided to look into it to see if it had happened mm-hmm. and why it hasn't or what's How in the way. How is it going? Yeah. And it's stuck, huh? Uh, they There's some money identified. There's some 
desire to make it happen. It's no one seems to be saying it's dead, but it's just not happening. Yeah, so it was supposed to be kind of a pilot project so you could see if, if these would work elsewhere. It's not a good sign so far. Yeah. Uh, Dave Roland, the mayor's spokesman, said this in an email to Lisa. He said, quote, The city cannot simply identify a parking lot, sanction it as an allowable use, and let people pitch tents there and live there without security, access to amenities like restrooms and hand washing, and connections to social workers and housing navigators, he said. So let's just be clear about the city cannot simply identify a parking lot, sanction it as an allowable use, and let people pinch t- pitch tents there, except for that they do, right? Like that's essentially what they've been doing for the whole community, right? They just, there's hundreds of tents everywhere. Yeah, which don't have that list of amenities and resources that came in the next sentence there. Yeah, security and security and hand washing stations, et cetera. Now they get they they disrupt those more often, it seems, than maybe they used to. Right. But they're mm-hmm. they're everywhere. Yeah, I th- I mean, so like this quote to me is like one of those uh ideal moments where you can you can take a step back away from the minutia of the discussion and just marvel at it. Mm-hmm. The city cannot simply do three things that perhaps it can't simply do those things. But if that's the case, that seems absurd that the city cannot simply do those three things. Like we should step, we should stand back and marvel at the fact that that's the level of bureaucracy we're dealing with, the level of intransigence, the level of, uh, you know, complexity that, that it seems Self, it's supposed to be seen as self-evidently absurd that we would be able to just do those three things. Yeah, let's say them again. The city cannot simply identify a parking lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, that doesn't seems seem like, like that hard. Yeah, seems like they should. Sanction it as allowable use. They have land use authority. Seems like they should. And let people pitch tents there and live there. It, it strikes me a little bit like what was novel and and potentially even revolutionary about the Yimby movement in local politics. Now, agree or disagree with that movement. Maybe you think that the Yimbys are annoying. Maybe you think that the issue is more complex than the NIMBY-Yimby divide. Maybe Let's you, explain maybe it. you disagree with them. Right? Let's explain Yimby. The Yes in My Backyard uh, was a movement that identified the fact that overwhelmingly the people who show up for any decision when a city makes one on housing development are people who have a vested interest in that area and they're much more likely to say no to that project than they are to say yes. And so there was an organizing movement to bring out the people who represented the desire or interest or openness to building more housing. And they started to push sort of reform initiatives that would make it easier, less complex, less expensive to build housing, to break down some of the procedural hurdles or actual uh, development restrictions that had made it so hard to build housing. And if they had like a, a one insight, I think, it was that there were layers and layers of government decision-making and restrictions that no one earnestly thought were necessary, that they were all created for the sake of stopping things. And that if you if you verbalized them enough to enough normal people, they would recognize that it was needlessly complex, that the the restrictions that stood in the way of building housing 
didn't need to be there unless your goal was to stop them. And I kind of think that this is like a moment like that. If the idea that you can't simply identify a parking space, sanction it for use, and allow people to start living there says something about the systems we've created and the procedures that get in the way of us pre presenting new solutions. That like that it that that that's supposed to be self-evident that it couldn't possibly be that simple means it's too complex. Yeah. You know, it, it's like it, it's like um it's like they're saying look, we've got uh, somebody drew this analogy analogy for me and I'm borrowing it. It's like they're saying, look, we've got the faucet turned all the way up. And everybody else on the outside is saying, yeah, it's not enough, though. You, you need a bigger hose. And they're like, yeah, but the faucet's turned all the way up. It's like, well, okay, but it's not enough water, right? And like, I, I think this is a moment when you issue this quote that's supposed to, I think, not voice frustration. There's one way for him to have this quote be, look, hey, I'd love it to be the case that we could do this quickly and simply and nimbly and for the, you know, the, the city to have the wherewithal or the legal leeway to do this, but we don't. And that's something we're trying to deal with. Or that's something somebody else has to deal with. But I don't think that that, I don't sense that that's what he means by it. I think what he means by it is it's not so simple dummies. Yeah. You guys don't get how hard it is. You're not grappling with the situation seriously. And we are, and we recognize that these procedures that keep us from doing this are good and important. And we support them because the, possibility for unintended consequences is severe mm -hmm. well it gets at the heart of what i've been trying to say which is that we need to take it to a different gear like you said get a bigger hose you need to take this discussion to a different level and i've been using this idea of emergency that if 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 a pandemic happened and and we would we would shift gears and how we collectively addressed it if a tsunami hit if a hurricane hit if there was an earthquake you would shift gears you'd, they'd put on their yellow jackets and they'd go out and say like and point to where there's going to be allowed tents and where there's going to be safe water and where we're going to have uh you know fema trailers lined up and stuff like that and that we need to go into that mode and so uh, rachel lang his communications director tweeted last night she said the problem we're facing is lack of workers and already built space that are, that are the biggest hurdles uh, so he, she's saying we have the money, we just can't get the workers to provide the services that they say is needed are needed to, before you can have anything like this. And she said, quote, I'm not sure there's an emergency designation that would enable, say, commandeering of hotel properties or conscripting workers, like forcing people to work there or otherwise taking people's land to do it. Now... Again, to use the term like emergency designation, I think is again getting into this like, well, which which actual, you know, designation which, are you talking about? Which procedural pathway are you proposing we should follow? And and I I think it just no, like we need to shift out of that conversation and and do something uh, more impactful and bigger and, adju and adjust our, our, our frame of reference for it the way that we would if something severe like a disaster happened. They say we need all these people to work at that place. Well, you realize that right now there are hundreds of encampments 
that aren't being served by those services. They're not manned. They don't have security. They don't have hand washing stations. They don't have showers. They they aren't connected to the services pipeline. They're they're just they're dispersed. Are you so you, there's no way at all to section off areas where they could be allowed to without, you know, um uh without all of these services being provided mm-hmm. and what stands in the way of that? And then later she made the point, she's like, we are treating it as an emergency. And I was like, well, no, you're not. I mean, in COVID, when they, they, they took over the convention center and librarians were in there working on behalf of the, the people, the homeless people who were in the convention center, that was an emergency manipulation of resources. Now, there's a bunch of <laughs> tryhards in, in the comments saying like, well, are you saying close libraries and have libraries <laughs> like watch these? No, I'm yeah, saying specifically. Yeah. In fact, you, you, uh, it's, it was an advocacy for book burning. That's what it really was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah exactly. Yeah. Let's burn all the books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Don't need them. Yeah. Kid upon to Kindle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so what I'm saying is like, there is an, a posture that we are, we have an actual recent experience in where we, Two. where, yes. Where we, One that resulted in the very policy we're pushing for right now. Yes. <laughs> a safe camping village. That's right. Literally, it happened. I lived here for it. It happened. It, it was by your neighborhood. It was in my neighborhood. <laughs> I argued with neighbors that it was fine. You and know it what turned happened? out to be fine. It was fine. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Like, we've, we've gone through this before where we've mobilized and changed something we, that before have been like, well, you can't turn the convention center into a homeless shelter. No. You can't accept it when you can. Yeah. And and you do because something big has happened. That's what I'm saying. You and they say what what they what they continue to think of it as is a is a is a departmental problem that you just got to keep working on and not that half the city's on fire. And it's it really is. Like there's so much encounters between the public and 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 unsheltered individuals and the suffering the deaths there's more deaths from fentanyl in the homeless camps than there were in in the first few months of the covid pandemic you know the the and yet we we mobilize so, and but was, like that's different that's, of course it's different right. but my no 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 i mean that's the the, the posture here though like, right but but those deaths for whatever definitional reasons don't trigger extreme actions and so yes, there are lots of things, and in- that I, I want to be clear. Like I believe that the procedural hurdles that they're discussing with are real. Absolutely. So she she went on you and know, she I, said it's demoralizing to work so hard and then get quote no one is doing anything from people like me, and these are people who put thirteen hundred people who were living on the streets into permanent housing. Let's be clear: no publication in town is describing what people are doing in this situation and in the service provider world than we are yeah then lisa halver said lisa halver said in particular yeah and nobody in town is telling those stories so nobody is saying no one is doing anything stop that right mm-hmm. stop saying that. we're not we're not i'm saying all that is happening is clearly not enough because everything that you tell us is, is that, that it's, it's getting worse it's gonna get worse and that's is not getting, our forecast no we, you know, you, the yeah. mayor, the city council president, the city councilman—they're all coming into a studio or t- talking with us, saying this is gonna get worse. 
And what I'm saying is that's that's like saying that the nuclear bomb that went off offshore is continuing to send radioactive particles and it's not going to get better. And you need to treat it like that. Like it's that scary and bad. There there was a moment for me. So recently I went to a, um, a homeless coalition meeting in the Mid-City Police Station in City Heights. And I just went in, I listened, I just wanted to get to know community members. Um, and so they went around the table and everybody talked about their issues. Um, you had officers from the Neighborhood Policing Division who, who who respond to a lot of these homeless encampment calls and they speak to the homeless residents and try to connect them to services. And sometimes it's just kind of like moving them along. Um, so they gave their report uh, and the city's environmental services department was there and they talked about their obstacles about cleaning up encampments and if there was any moisture in the air like they couldn't clean up any encampments and they have like certain hours that they have to set and uh, notices for these encampments that they're cleaning up and park rangers were there and representatives from the council member's office was there and everybody like there was a moment where so many people were going around and you know the officers were like well we we moved to this encampment that we got calls for but you know we got to go to a different neighborhood by the time we come back next week like they'll be back but like we'll hit them again and then the residents were like oh yeah like i know we saw this encampment moved and you know but now it's over here and okay thanks like we'll try to get to it next round and it was a lot of like what is really happening like i was sitting there just kind of observing what has become very natural for this group because they're you know very involved very organized and how they report um, encampments or concerns with certain populations. And a lot of them were like, a lot of the homeless population, we've been noticing like more violent reports and more violent individuals. Like, how do we deal with that? And it was just a lot of the same. And uh, park rangers and also environmental staff saying like, you know, well, I have like four guys on my team or I have two guys on my team. Like, you know, really just got to pressure your political uh, representatives or, or your politicians and it just I was sitting there and all that energy and these conversations were just like incredibly frustrating. It was it's interesting, though, that they said you just have to pressure your political officials because, uh, you know, whoever said that, don't they know that they're trying really hard? <laughs> to, well, uh, do, are they implying that that it, I mean, are they it's demor- do they know that it's demoralizing it to all, all the people who have worked came, so hard? It all came from city workers, just, yeah. city workers like saying. You, you just need to put more pressure on your elected officials. You voted these individuals in. They're the ones making the decisions. And we do what we do because they tell us what to do. That's fascinating. I wonder what they would say the politicians should, should do. Should put, it might be forward. something along the lines of take a different approach and start to cut through some of these procedural yeah. hands. And it's all, and look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being snarky. And uh, so take it with a grain of salt. Perhaps that's just throat clearing that they mm-hmm. say because they don't have a good answer and uh you know as far as crutch phrases in front of a room go that's one and maybe they they don't they're not implying anything by it but like you know it, it's we it's interesting to think of a community like that that has become so adjusted to this normal that mm-hmm. that that they can speak in such matter of fact organized t- terms mm-hmm. about the situation. Yeah, they've been yeah. meeting for seven years, and it yeah. was just interesting to sit in and watch how they go. And they all knew the process, all knew the obstacles, but there was still like an immense amount of frustration that, like, seven years later, they're still there, and it's mm-hmm. only getting worse. That that's that's the hard that's the hard part is that 
there is the entire apparatus of the city's government, uh, besides all of the uh, work that is being done, and there is a tremendous amount, but the the public facing side of it, the the explanation part, the communications part, the outrage part, is entirely focused on explaining to people how hard everything is, and how hopeless it is. Yeah, and maybe it's because like there's not a better story to tell. Uh, you know, I I don't know, but like, it's there's also a certain cynicism to it. Well, every enterprise needs to have people who ask what might be called the impossible question. Yeah. You know, for, for us, it's like, how are you going to reach more readers? How are you going to double your budget? How are you going to, you know, and it's like a constant pressure to reach higher performing mm-hmm. levels, right? To, to do better. And in a democracy, that is the, the people, and that is the the pressure that they put, and that is the that us that we try to help voice that right to say like, you have to take this up to a new level, and I don't care what other places are doing. I don't care about all the excuses and the the explanations about how hard and difficult it is. We have to deal with this because it is it is a disaster. It is horrifying out there every day, and this isn't a job evaluation of the the mayor this isn't a you know he you know performance question about whether he's pushing the right buttons or not or this, for the city line staff it's it's it, it isn't about their job performance either this frankly. is a plea to respond to the desire for leadership on that and if the leadership is just i get it like i see how bad this is and we're we're going to we're going to do everything we can to get our arms wrapped around this, and I understand it's not acceptable. But to to start to personalize and defend that this is the best that can be done—that's the problem I have. Mm-hmm. You got to acknowledge that this isn't the best that can be done. It even if you think it is, you can't do that. Like mm-hmm. this is—it's so bad that if you do that, you're you're just communicating to the the community that it's hopeless. And if it's hopeless, then this is a bad place to live, and will will get worse. Mm-hmm. You can read all of Lisa Halverstadt's uh, great reporting on homelessness and other issues at VOSD.org slash Lisa. That's VOSD.org slash Lisa. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Join culture creator Remel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. 
Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. We are joined in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio by two friends, investigative reporter Will Huntsbury and associate editor Jesse Marks. Greetings and salutations, Andy. What up? Welcome, guys. Um, so you guys have come out of the the journalism mines, soot-faced after 18 months, Yeah, putting an investigation together, um, started rolling it out two weeks ago, um, but we're through three stories now in this uh, second second phase of this uh, rolling investigation about the COVID deaths, about what, what COVID did to uh, the San Diego region. Um, by way of explaining it, maybe you guys could tell us what, where are, where is the the data that we are relying on here coming from? How did we get it, and what makes it different than uh, some of the other data that that you know the county puts out or that the that has otherwise been made publicly available? So the data that we got is directly coming from death certificates, which the county had in its possession. But even getting a hold of those required a tremendous amount of work and energy. We actually had to sue to get them. And so the origins for the project came in summer of 2020 when a freelancer of ours, Jared Whitlock, was interested in knowing whether nursing homes specifically had more COVID deaths than than other parts of the region. And that was the question he was trying to figure out. But the problem when he asked for those documents was that the county came back and said, well, that information's private. We can only give it to you if you already know the name of the person who died and I think had their birth date, right? So they wanted certain demographic information. And we said, we don't know what we don't know. That's impossible. So we sued and we won. Yeah. So, the, the, so their argument was death certificates are public records. Yes. Under certain conditions. But you must ask for specific death certificate. You can't make a request for all death, all death certificates listing with some keyword. And a judge said, no, nah, dog. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, nah, doesn't wild. work that way at all. <laughs> right. But then, but then the problem we encountered was yeah. that they didn't want to give us digital copies of the records. And they said, if you want it, uh, there'll be twenty dollars a piece, and so during the first year, we were looking at what forty four hundred death certificates somewhere around there. Yeah, forty four hundred, which would have come out to have been about eighty thousand dollars just to get our hands. Oh, bigs. Okay. <laughs> well, we're public records, so instead, uh, we drove to Santee basically like every day for months and just looked at the documents ourselves, and then we had to log them into a spreadsheet, and so that took at least six months, right? At least six months, but it gave us the ability to do whatever we wanted with the data you know like jesse said the county had these records but they were only putting out what they wanted to put out right. um and you know we were able to glean information about people's education level their immigration status and we we're able to look at deaths by zip code in year one and year two you know none of that stuff was what the county was putting because most of it was aggregated and like when the county was talking about these things and releasing them, it was mostly geographical, right? It wasn't very targeted or specific. So we were able to go on a granular level and see these changes over time. Right. Yeah. So anything that's on a on a death certificate, you had access to, and it turns out it's quite a lot of information listed on a death certificate. It's a pretty robust information source. Probably maybe surprisingly so, I think for for many people. Yeah, I never would have. It's a rich document. It's a rich document. And when you first see, look at it, I don't know if you see that, you know, you're like, okay, well, their education level, like where they lived. But then you start like tabulating it and you start, you know, one of the biggest things we noticed right away was how many immigrants were dying, you know, 
immigrants died really disproportionately in the first year. That was one of our first big stories. And the death certificates gave us that. Yeah. And we were also able to notice that there was a correlation with education levels as well. And I think that was the second one we did, but that was very high up there. And most of the most of the deaths tend to be coming from black and brown communities. It was largely in South County. Right, right. We had people's job. I mean, you know, and we categorized those job into census categories. We were able to put everybody kind of in a class and then see like deaths based on class. And no one was doing information like that. Right. Okay. And so that was COVID year one, basically. We we did a cutoff on the on the data from when the virus hit until one year later and use that as sort of our our endpoint to to define what the when we were gonna look at things. And then we had a question for ourselves, should we should we keep this investigation going? So should we see what happened after that? And maybe it would have been time to let to let the that this you know project die. Um, except there was a very interesting fact that something significant changed in year two, which mm-hmm. was we had a vaccine, right? And it and it coincided exactly with year roughly exactly year two of the pandemic. So the first the first leg of the project was looking at March of twenty twenty to March of twenty twenty one, and then around March of twenty twenty one and beyond was when the vaccines rolled out. So we were able to analyze what the effect of the vaccines were on the second half of this project. Yeah, right. That's year two was it wasn't just like well should we just keep doing this at which point. You would ask the question, well, how long are we going to do this? Are we going to do this for year three, year four, year five? <laughs> but year two was posed a, a novel question. How, how did the vaccine change things? And the, the first one was fewer people died. That was that, the first one. That's yeah. Like, yeah, a lot less people died. Half <laughs> as many people died after the vaccine came out. The other interesting thing we noticed, though, is that the median age of death went down, which struck us as a little surprising at first. And we talked to public health professionals about it, and they said, well, if vaccines had to dis- had been distributed equitably, the median age of death should have stayed the same or possibly gone up because the virus would have worked its way into older and more vulnerable populations. But what we discovered was that vaccine rates were relatively lower among younger and middle-aged people, so it, it compressed the median age of death, which meant younger and younger people were dying in increased rates as time went on. Yeah. So younger people were less likely to be vaccinated and therefore more likely to be out in the workforce and more likely to be out in the workforce. And in year two, because of the vaccine, lots of the society reopened. Mm -hmm. So not only are they out in the workforce, they're out in the world. And younger people, I think like the first year, we all heard constant message of like the specific populations that were more susceptible to, Mm -hmm. to the virus and also to like getting really, really sick and getting complications. And it was always like, older people. So when you get to year two, you're like, oh, I'm a young, healthy person. I'll be fine. I think, yeah, we did. And we heard that specifically that people loosened up and thought the virus was less of a threat. And, you know, so that that definitely affected people's behavior. Well, so and that's the point we keep stressing over and over again is that it's complex. You're not going to come to any single justification Mm -hmm. for what happened here. And vaccines played a central role. And there may have even been an unintended consequence to that, which is after vaccines became widely available, there was a perception that the pandemic was over. So people started venturing out again in groups. They start going back to work. They like they just start returning to normal, right? And so you combine a lot of different factors that are political, that are cultural, and that are medical, because a lot of professionals were also telling us, look, the healthcare industry was completely disrupted in year one. So a lot of people with underlying conditions were delaying or avoiding preventative care that might have helped them. 
And that ties back to how the virus actually works. The virus kind of weakens the body's defenses and sets the stage for its demise. So if you have diabetes, hypertension, uh, any number of underlying ailments, you were more susceptible to this. So you take all of that together and combine it, and it's just a bad recipe for what happened. And so I guess we th this is a good opportunity to say what COVID-19 appearing on the death, or death certificate m means, what, what that, that distinction is actually describing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, um, because we we heard that pushback all throughout the pandemic. Um, you know, from people who were questioning the pandemic. Essentially, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of these deaths aren't COVID deaths, and that that actually you know is true. We requested every death certificate that said COVID on it, and in many cases, uh, in fact, the vast majority of cases, COVID was one of the primary causes. But in some cases. 7% of cases, I believe, in year one, mm -hmm. and 15% of cases in year two, COVID was listed as a contributing condition. So it wasn't listed um, as the cause. So, you know, people who were giving that pushback were stating a real fact, but but still the vast majority of cases, like doctors said COVID caused this death. And and even in the cases where it's a contributing factor, the doctor, it, it, it's, it's not, you know, the, the pushback you would often hear was with COVID or from COVID. Right. But it can be due to COVID, even if it's the second or or tertiary, you know, or third cause of an unhealthy person dying. Yeah, because you take COVID out of the equation and it might not happen to right. begin with, right? It it triggers a chain of events. And mm -hmm. and and we talked to doctors about this too, like, you know, those who'd filled out death certificates and said, How did you come to these conclusions and what do you make of the pushback from anti vaxxers? And one doctor told us straight up, he said, There is a certain level of subjectivity to it. I need to decide what triggered what. And so just putting it anywhere on the paperwork, though, was too much for some families, and they got upset with us. They just didn't believe and couldn't believe that it was a thing. And it's like, sorry, it was. How do you contend with that, right? And so we're in this this realm in certain places of like kind of make-believe. Yeah. And I think we discovered that uh, in the last couple of stories that we just wrote, in the last one specifically. I mean, we're measuring the same way across this two-year period, right? Like, the, it, unless somebody has an allegation out there that the doctors changed their death certificate writing behavior in year two. I mean, and you would hear stuff like that occasionally, like it's there, there, the financial incentive came up, you know, in our conversations with anti-vaxxers, like hospitals were getting more money if they put COVID on the death certificate or a doctor was getting more money if they put COVID on the death certificate, you know, regardless, COVID deaths went down in year yeah. two. That's what we found. And there was still a lot of COVID money rolling around in year two. Why didn't they keep doing it in year two? <laughs> right. Why, if this was such a great, such a lucrative scheme for endeavor. Them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Half as much. Right. They're willingly giving away half of the money they could have in the, received. Um, okay. So, so Jesse, you, um, you, you indicated a, a, the recent story, the one that published on Monday. Um, this was, uh, I, I think, a very interesting finding in that. As you say, the way the county has been releasing data, we were unlikely to ever get something this um, distinct and novel from the sort of aggregate way they were releasing information. Um, so what was it that you guys found? Well, we found that uh, there was a cluster of, of increases in the rate of death, mostly in East County. Not exclusive to East County, but mostly in East County. And we zeroed in on Lakeside specifically because it had the the sharpest increase in death rates. And Will, you can probably speak to the specifics of that. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, year two, deaths dramatically go down in pretty much every zip code in San Diego County. 
in Lakeside, they more than double, you know? So when we saw that, we were like, this is certainly a story. This is huge. Turned out several zip codes touching it also had increases, but not nearly to the same magnitude, you know, Santee, Ramona, Alpine, one other zip code that's technically in San Diego, but right out there. And none of those were on our radar the first time around. We were mostly focused on South County and South Bay. And so there's this just dramatic shift over towards East County. And I personally had never heard of that through the county at no, all. I'd never, never seen that up. reported at all. So I do think that that was something new that we were able to mm-hmm. produce because we had this granular data. We could see very targeted where it was moving and shifting. And in the South and in the South Bay specifically, we do know that there were targeted public health campaigns. They had mobile units that were going around to ensure that people got vaccinated, ensure that they had access to it because they might be working or they might be busy or there might be hesitancy. And they were also training people on the ground to serve as ambassadors down in South Bay. I don't think that happened in East County. Yeah, no, there. You know, certainly there was plenty of vaccine rollout in East County, but I, it does not seem like there was quite the same level of like really pounding the pavement to make sure everybody got it. And it also seems like there's quite a bit of vaccine hesitancy uh, out in Lakeside that you know probably no one could have overcome. You right. know, and and so just to put a fine point on the finding here, countywide. The rate of deaths went down. The deaths per uh, what was your measure? Hundred thousand yeah, t- deaths per one hundred thousand went down considerably yes. by a lot. And in these zip codes, the death rate went up. We're not saying that the death rates went down everywhere and it went down here less fast. No, we're not saying that because it went down less down less fast here, the proportion of deaths countywide in these places increased as a function of that, even though it's still decreased. We're saying it went up here. Mm -hmm. People died more regularly here, even as everywhere else, they died much, much less. Yep. That's exactly what we're saying. Yes. It's a really shocking finding. If you look at the year one data, Lakeside had the 62nd highest death rate in the county, about 55 per 100,000. In year two, it had the highest death rate of any zip code, 134 deaths per 100,000. I mean, that's <laughs> it's like it's 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 this is not a like often in like, for instance, in your your the median age, it's a pretty marginal change, right? Like the median age went down, but it's not like it went from 75 to 35 and you go, oh, my goodness, this is like that stark to me to go from the in the. 50s or 60s of of the most uh you know the highest death rate to number one is uh is shocking i i think we were very shocked too and so we just said we we have to go there and we just have to talk to people on the ground and immediately what we encountered was just this disbelief like sometimes bordering on hostility like like people just say no that's that's incorrect that cannot be true i don't know anyone who died that doesn't make any sense and we were like it is i'm sorry what do you think it is and then they would go nah it's the vaccine that's killing people dog and we're like okay <laughs> like it, like the yeah. conversation we're ends like there. but people are vaccinated less here though you know cuz that's yeah. the other important finding you know the lakeside has a low vaccination rate in the county but like jesse can you tell the chamber of commerce story or is that not allowed <laughs> No, I think it's fine. I went into the Chamber of Commerce office. I didn't write this in the piece, but I, I was talking to people in that room and, and they immediately just said that somebody who greeted me at the door said that cannot possibly be true. And I said, why do you think that? And they said, go back to the archives and double check. You're wrong. You're wrong. And I said, I swear I'm right. And they said, we'd like you to leave now. And I just walked out. Really? <laughs> I just left. Yeah. Because and, and, and so you go in there, I, I presume, because 
this is such a stark finding. This jumps out of the data set. You run the numbers and you go, oh my goodness, like there's a, a spinning red light next to Lakeside that says, look here, researcher who's combing through the numbers. This is the number that stands out. And you go to say, were you guys aware of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, like this is new to me, but was this known here? No, clearly And the not. answer is no. <laughs> yeah. No, and I figured if anyone would know, it would be local business leaders, right? Because they would have some pulse on at least like the civic scene. In or if they side? reacted to it in some way, like it's, yeah. it, it would have been plausible that they reacted to it, but it didn't trigger the, you know, city focused news coverage or whatever. Right? And it, it was interesting, Andy, because then I walked across the street and I went to the library and I talked to a librarian and he goes, oh, yeah, not not surprised by that at all. And then we <laughs> talked to him and he said, yeah, I was walking the other day at a parking lot and a guy yelled at me to take my mask off. Oh, and he's like, that's just kind of that was the vibe that I get around here. If you wear a mask, it's showing fear. You're giving in to this 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 larger narrative. I heard that, too. You know, fear like, you know, I was talking to a hairdresser, you know, and she was like, people here like are, you know, almost like a macho thing. Like we're not going to show fear, you know, and, you know, it's easy. It's real easy to turn that into cartoon behavior if you're um pro vaccine but when you're out there talking to these people like almost 100% of the time their humanity comes through mm-hmm. and i think that was something like Jesse and i lingered on like time and time again that these are not like cartoon people and i don't want to treat them that way maybe other people do but i'm not into that no and and i think we we tried very very hard to to humanize people and be respectful to them even when we disagreed with them and and i think that really came out when we were talking to family members who lost loved ones and there were two different reactions we got there was one woman whose son died who said basically her her son's brain had been poisoned by talk radio and he did, he thought that the the vaccine was going to be dangerous to his body and she deeply regretted that that she couldn't convince him otherwise and then we talked to another woman whose husband died and she does believe that the vaccine is bad for the body. And so we're just getting these different takes and you're trying to be respectful of them. You're trying to push back. And I remember at one point we even we even told the woman whose husband died, we said, look, we we disagree with you. We think that there's probably a correlation here between low vaccine rates and high death rates. And we hear you and we we understand that your grief is is real and your mourning is real and everything. But like, why why even participate in the story if, we, if you think we're probably a bunch of cranks? And she just said, I just want to talk about my husband. I just want to tell his story. And so her pain is real and you need to acknowledge that at the same yeah. time. And it's sad. Right. It's sad. And it's sad. And if you, you know, her husband died, they both were anti-vaxxers. Her husband dying has not changed her mind. So, you know, I think people should start with that. You know, there's a there's a message not in this story for just for anti-vaxxers, but for pro-vaxxers too. like that hasn't changed that woman's mind. And you can refuse to acknowledge her and what she believes. But I'm not like really sure that that clearly to me doesn't accomplish anything. You can hear her out like we did and you can start with that. And like, does that change the truth on the ground a great deal? I don't. I don't know if it does, but at least it leaves the oper- the door open for change that we'll have a conversation and we'll listen, you know. Right. What's the story on the vaccination rates? I remember there was a number that really stood out to me. It was the lakeside vaccination rate compared to San Ysidro. <laughs> yeah. Like, shocking. San Ysidro is up in the 80s. One, one San Ysidro zip code even list the the uh, vaccination rate at a hundred percent, which probably isn't true, but it means it's like extremely high there. The median in San Diego County is seventy three percent. 
uh, and in Lakeside, 55% vaccinated, fully vaccinated. And so, I mean, there's a tragedy of the commons here that, you know, people might want to focus on blaming individuals for, for their choice. But there's another story you can tell, which is community-wide, the vaccination rate was very low. And because countywide, the vaccination rate was not very low, restrictions and public health declarations eased. And so those two things combined and it, the, the, you know, the, what remained in Lakeside was a, a, dangerous environment for some of these people and you could you could you know comfort yourself as much as you want in the fact that they made a decision not to be vaccinated but a vaccinated people died in lakeside too that's right right. it's still 55 percent of the population there was vaccinated that's right and for another like so a person made a bad decision so a person you know started listening to a bad talk radio show that gave them bad advice like I, I don't think that should be a death sentence. I don't think that should absolve us from any sort of uh, sense of loss of, for for totally. them or for the community. Yeah, I think oftentimes we're kind of like to Will's point a second ago. You're not going to argue with a lot of these folks, and I think sometimes we just we look at the wrong things. Like there's there's some like a lot of these people are alienated. They're isolated. There's something going on. They're probably in poor socioeconomic conditions. Like there's more going on here than I think any of us really realize or want to talk about. And yes. we didn't really scratch the surface of that. But I think that that's like an area that people just need to reflect on. Like what is it that pushes you into that position of just being so mistrustful mm-hmm. of just being unable able to believe that the medical establishment would produce something that's actually good for you and that's free right and it's like i don't and we you know and we all we all trick ourselves sometimes you know we all run games in our own minds and this woman you know i think maybe to her like to all of a sudden acknowledge covid would be like to her um a slap in the face to her husband's legacy. Her husband didn't acknowledge COVID. He didn't want it acknowledged. And she's like carrying that torch and somebody might make a different decision, but I can understand that decision she's made. And and it was interesting talking to her because there's like a crack in, in that facade that you could someday potentially push through, but she's got to get there herself. But what she said to me that I thought was really interesting is that she could believe that COVID is what killed her husband if it hadn't been so sudden. If it hadn't, have, if he hadn't have gone to bed one night complaining of a cold that he had experienced that day and then died, she'd have a different perspective on it, which means that somewhere in the back of her brain, she does understand that COVID can be deadly. It just mm-hmm. wasn't in this case to her and for, her husband. For a specific reason. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, it is important work, I think, to to sort of provide a more robust public record for what happened, what we all lived through for the last two years. I think there's an eagerness to move on by myself as well. Um, but you know, uh, if the work's not done now, I, I, I don't think it was ever going to be done. And so, um, I think, you know, we've got, we've got more coming, right? We hope so. We yeah. hope so. We got, we got some interesting it's stuff of, cooking right now. Yeah. We got, of, we got a lot some of columns, a lot of rows to sort through. Right? We, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got some voter files. I'll say yeah. that. And it's. <laughs> 200,000 rows long. <laughs> we're, try, we're trying to look at the political question in a way that we hadn't in the previous pieces. So that's all we'll say. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, fantastic. And uh, we'll talk to you guys as, as more work is done. All right. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this section of San Diego that is doing a year-end fundraiser 
critical to this organization. It's the most popular public affairs podcast that is doing that for this organization. Uh, and this podcast, really, it's dependent on people like you supporting it. So if you are willing to do that, push a few buttons. I know you got you to gotta get your phone out or you got to go to your computer. Just take the extra step. We really appreciate it. Go to vosd.org slash pod people, vosd.org slash pod people. Uh, you know, one of the things I'd love to do is, is set up the thing where your brain could just say, yeah, I'll pay those people so you don't have to push the buttons because I believe that like pushing the buttons itself is a big hurdle to getting donations. Until we get there, just push the buttons, please. It's awesome and it would really help us out. The link is in the show notes, vosd.org slash pod people. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego. Andrew Keats is managing editor. Andrea Lopez Villafania is also managing editor. Hey, John's our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.